Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today is the first day of Ontario's vaccine certification plan. What do you need to know? Richard Brennan will join us to talk about that. Hamilton's growth in population means we need changes in housing. What has to happen? Very contentious subject that we're going to get into. And Chad Collins will be sworn in as Member of Parliament for Hamilton East Stony Creek, vacating his Ward 5 Council seat. Who's going to replace him and how's it going to happen? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This is the day that uh, the proof of vaccination policy here in the province of Ontario will go into effect. Are you confused by that? <laughs> yeah, well, join the lineup. It's uh, somewhat of a, a, a sticky situation. I mean, patrons at dining restaurants and nightclubs and gyms and sports facilities and other venues will now have to present a receipt of full vaccination against COVID-19 along with government-issued identification. Emily Javesky has some details. Businesses in Ontario say they're uncertain how the province's vaccine certificate system will be received, but hopeful it rolls out smoothly. The province's top public health doctor, Kieran Moore, has asked Ontarians to be kind and considerate as the system takes effect. The province has said it aims to launch a QR code and verification app for businesses on October 22nd to streamline the process. Fines are on the table for businesses that don't comply with the checks required by the system and for patrons who give false information. Emily Javesky, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So is Ontario ready for this? Uh, let's uh, bring uh, Richard Brennan into the conversation. Richard, of course, former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back. Hope you survived Election Day. Oh, yes, I did. I fell asleep a couple times, but otherwise. <laughs> yeah, well, that typical Canadian election, I suppose. Uh, it is it is what it is. We'll, we'll get into that in just a couple of seconds. Let's, let's talk about this policy. The, uh, the, a reluctant premier uh, has said, I didn't want to do this. You know me, I didn't. You know, it was not the sort of thing I like to do, but we're being forced into it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the rationalization for this. Uh, is it going to fly? Well, Bill, as a matter of fact, when I went to the gym this morning, I showed my proof of vaccination, as, as did all the other gym goers, and uh, there's no problem at all. You know, the people showed it, you know, it didn't, wasn't even reluctant. They showed it to the, uh, the uh, person at the front, and um, yeah, it just went smoothly from what I could see. Well, this is one of the things that I'm finding a little confusing, and we are going to talk to some restaurateurs and obviously consumers about this too. Uh, variations of this have already been in play for some time now, haven't they? I mean, I've you know I've been to a Tiger Cat game on Friday, and you know I have to show proof of vaccination, and, and nobody seemed to complain about it. You got it ready there; it's on your phone, or you got a piece of paper, whatever the case might be. Uh, you know, show that Bob's your uncle. Get in there and, and enjoy the game. Go and enjoy your workout. Uh, are, are people making a big deal out of this one? They shouldn't really need to. Oh, I, I, you know what? I, I don't think it's going to be as big a deal as we might think, because we knew it was coming. We've known it for a long time now, and like you say, you had to go to the Ticat game show, and show it. So I don't think it. No one was kind of, you know, this morning at the gym was kind of went, oh my goodness, I didn't know we had to do this. No, everybody just was ready and, and showed it. So you know, there'll be there'll be people who will. Uh, you know, get their back up and say, you know, I, I shouldn't have to do this and all that. Well, I mean, that's inevitable. But you know what? You're going to have to do it. If you want to go to, you know, a gym, the show, or whatever, and if you want to get in, well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to play ball. There's a, a greater argument here, and you've seen a lot of the social media stuff on this, I guess, over the last couple of days, and you're right. Uh, the people that seem to want to make a stink about this are saying basically, you know, well, they, you know, I... 
then you're infringing on my, my, my civil rights. And if I, I, I don't see the argument there, quite frankly. I mean, because there are rules and regulations all around us. You know, whether we're talking about driver's licenses or even to the gym, you can't just walk into the gym. You've got to have a membership. You've got to show proof of membership to get into the gym or you're not going to be allowed in. That's right. Uh, and, you know, and, and restaurants, as you and I have discussed in the past, you know, whether people don't feel comfortable with this or not, restaurants can refuse service if they don't think you're a, a customer that, that's, you know, going to behave or you're gonna, you know, you could be a health risk, any number of things. They can simply say, we'd rather you, you know, you, that you left. And that may happen with some cases. You know there are going to be people that are going to try to make a stink about this and make a stand just to put on a show. Oh, of course. But, you know, if you're a restaurateur and, you know, you've got, you know, you've got, you know, reliable clients who, who customers that come in practically every week to, and, and, and all of a sudden it's going to be tough for these uh, restaurateurs to turn these clients away if they're not vaccinated. I can appreciate that. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, you look at it and go, geez, I've known these people for 10 years and they've come here regularly and, and now I, I have to say no to them. That's going to be hard. Absolutely. But you're going to have to do it. That's the law. You know, whether you like it or not. I mean, the thing is, you know, you talk about right to right this, right to that. I shouldn't have to do this. I shouldn't have to do that. Well, with rights come responsibilities, and that's what this is. And, and as, as for, the, I can understand hurt feelings, or some people might get you know, their backup about something like this, uh, which begs the question, then why haven't you been vaccinated? Is it just on principle? And if that's the case, well, you know, this is the consequence of it. Uh, and, and I guess they have to understand that. I, you know, the, I think what, one of the things that probably we'll find out from the premier later on today, but probably motivated them to move in this direction. Well, two things. First of all, the, the number of, of new cases of, of this variant, which are problematic. But the other is uh, the vaccination rates themselves are starting to, to climb back up again here in Ontario. So those people that are saying, hey, I don't have the vaccination and I think I should be served anyway, is becoming a smaller and smaller minority almost on a daily basis here. Well, we're we're nearing what almost what eight percent in in yeah. Ontario that uh, has been uh, totally vaccinated. <laughs> I mean, get with the game. You can you can you can you know it's like a it's like a child. You can stomp your feet and say, "I'm not doing it." Well, more sooner or later, you are going to do it, or you're going to pay the consequences. That's what it is. And, and by the way, which bunker did they find the premier in? I was just wondering. <laughs> Well, that's the big thing. We're all going to be listening at 1130. I haven't heard from the guy for, what, how many weeks now? Oh, well, uh, during the whole campaign. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. Maybe he's <laughs> is he going to pull a Rod Phillips and say, yeah, I've been down in the in the Caribbean for the last... I don't know what, what he's been doing. Uh, but he certainly kept a low profile on this, although he did pop his head up today after the election to congratulate uh, Justin Trudeau uh, and call for peace uh, and says it's time to put our differences aside. Uh and you juxtapose that with what Scott Moe did yesterday, saying this was a useless election, didn't get us anywhere, yada, 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 uh, taking shots at, at Justin Trudeau. Uh, I, I'm not so sure that there is going to be peace in the premiers. I mean, the premiers themselves have got their own problems. You, you look at Jason Kenney and, and, and even in Saskatchewan with Scott Moe, what's going on. Uh, it's been relatively easy for Doug Ford over the last little while. Uh, and uh, I guess what he's trying to do is, is forge some sort of a relationship now with Ottawa. Uh, because going forward here, this is going to have to be something be between the federal and provincial government. The COVID-19 relief, uh, the, the, I know that before the election and during the election, uh, the premier was making some statements that said, look, this should be a national policy. The, the, the onus shouldn't be on uh, each individual province to do this. Is he going to try to raise that issue again with the prime minister? 
I, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I, you know, I think that that ship is sailed. But I'll, I'll tell you, these uh, as much as you know, people will criticize him for, <clears throat> pardon me, for hiding away. But the, the point is, he probably did the right thing. In fact, you know, his uh, his stock went up <laughs> during these thirty six days of campaign. I'm talking about Ford now. Uh, his popularity has gone up, and you know, he, you, you don't. You don't, you know, uh, throw stones at Ottawa all the time and expect them, you know, to treat you fairly. That's all there is to it. I know it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not right. It doesn't sound right, but that's the way it is. I mean, God, it's just, it is a mess uh, for, you know, uh, Jason Kenney, you know, now that they're calling, people are calling for him to resign now over this whole vaccination and, 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 and the treatment of the way they dealt with uh, the COVID-19. So, you know, uh, I, I think, I really believe, in fact, that Ford has handled this correctly and has laid low and is, isn't out there to pick a fight. And I don't think he's going to pursue any more with this business of, you know, of, you know some kind of federal document or whatever. Well, I, I I don't know the man that well. I mean, I've had him on the show a number of times, uh, but uh, I don't know how pragmatic he is in a situation like this. But even if you look at the track record over the last two and a half years especially, uh, every time he's picked a fight, it has done him no good at all. I mean, they've lost the court battles. He's lost his popularity. Every time he's trying to, you know, to, to go head-to-head with the, the prime minister on just about any issue, uh, I don't, they may not be best of friends at all, but I think he's maybe come to the realization that there at least has to be a working relationship here, and, and taking shots isn't going to do anybody any good here. Well, yeah, you, you nailed it there, Bill. It's a working relationship. You don't have to love the guy. Uh, but you've got to work with them. And I think that's where other premiers have gone wrong. They want to pick a fight. They want to pick a fight all the time for one thing or another. And where does it get you? And I think finally, and I mean finally, uh, Ford has realized that, you know, there's no sense of picking a fight because, he, as you pointed out, he's lost most of them. So you might as well try and get along. Well, and, you know, again, down the road of pragmatism here, there's an election coming up in a few months here in the province of Ontario, too. And, you know, if you want to start looking at cause and effect, every time he tries to get into a confrontational situation, his numbers go down. And uh, that's not the sort of attitude, and that's not the sort of trend you want to see going into June and, and the next election. Well, for the next several months, like you said, the June election, we're going we're gonna to see Uncle Doug. And he's gonna he's gonna you know be you know there uh, out and about all the time. You're you're gonna get sick of seeing him on t- television, and you're gonna get sick of hearing from him because he's already preparing for the big day. And and now it's not like you said is not the time to pick a fight with people. It's the time to work with them and get along because that's. That's what's going to pave the way for him for the next election, is to be seen as as a you know as a nation builder, as a, a you know a guy at the table that is willing to you know bend here and there to you know make the province and the country better. That's that's the kind of guy you're going to see for the next several months. 
Well, because if there's one thing we've noticed over the last, well, 15, 16 months, I guess, uh, premiers are going to wear this. I mean, I, you know, I know they always want to point the, the finger at Ottawa and say, well, you know, the, the Fed should have been doing this, and, and there's an argument to be made for some of that stuff. I get that. But you see what happened in Alberta with Kenny. You see what happened in, in B.C. with Horan and in Ontario with Ford. When the numbers start to go up and they start talking about lockdowns and more restrictions, it's on the premiers. And uh, he's... I think probably resigned to the fact that, look, i got to do something to bring these numbers down, uh, or my numbers are going to continue to go down, too. Uh, and he's, he's got a problem here. I mean, I'm sure he's going to refer to that when he uh, meets with us later on today. But uh, if the rising numbers of, of new cases here uh, is problematic, and uh, he's got to do something about that because people are getting tired of all this stuff, and they're getting tired of showing proof of this and proof of that, and I can't do this. They're getting tired of wearing masks, and they're, they're just simply saying, look, what are you going to do to fix this? And uh, I think people are demanding any answers right now and i don't know that anybody actually has any except stay the course people are fed up bill yeah and i mean fed up and he's got a lot to answer for you know he, he might try to put on you know his cardigan and uh and and, and suggest that uh he's you know new and improved and he's not the same old doug ford that was elected several you know a few years back but the point is he is going to, there's going to be a lot of questions about his leadership and he is really going to have to work hard over the next few months to repair the damage that was done and and i know when you get into election modes and we had this discussion a lot during the federal campaign that just wrapped up is you say you know as soon as you start criticizing or criticizing the policies of one individual say oh well would you rather have so-and-so that's not the point the point is is that that's the person that's in the quarter office that's the person that we're going to you know be evaluating and judging based on what they're going to do right now uh and and uh, you know i don't know that there's much in the way of opposition uh, come the next provincial election between the ndp and the liberals to offer any viable alternative to leadership here but you just want whoever is going to be the premier to start tackling these problems and you're right he's he's obfuscated his responsibility more than once in this situation uh maybe this is the day where he's just going to take the bull by the horns and say this is the way it's going to be i don't know is is, is that the kind of doug ford that that we'll see today no you'll you'll see a, a doug ford is, is going to try and, and tell people that every, everything is you know is going to be okay uh you know we're dealing with this uh, pandemic and uh, we're all going to have to you know fight through it that's that's the guy you're going to see today i don't think you expect anything you know uh, memorable, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, we'll find out in a couple hours. Uh, Vadger, always a pleasure. Uh, th- thanks so much for the time today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Talk to you later, Bill. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, covering uh, what's going to be happening at Queen's Park later on today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Something else that we've been talking about on the program a lot uh, that's kind of pushed to the to the back burner in many municipalities is uh, how communities grow. We know all about the housing problem in Ontario. It's not just a Hamilton or London problem. It's happening in just about every community. Uh, prices are through the roof right now and making unaffordable for an awful lot of people. So there's that element of it. But at the same time, the other consideration here is is how we're supposed to grow. And there's a real debate going on in Hamilton right now about possibly, possibly extending their urban boundary to to try to accommodate some more growth that is expected to be happening over the next little while. Uh, We had a discussion a week or two ago on the program with uh, Murtaza Hader. Murtaza Hader is a professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University who studied this uh, this particular subject extensively. He says there's a big disconnect that has led us to the housing crisis we're in right now. This notion of 
thinking negatively about the supply or ignoring it in academics and policy making and by the governments not to realize that they have not built enough housing in the last five decades that has to change or otherwise we'll keep looking at the increasing housing prices with surprise and say we wonder why that is happening i don't think there's a need to wonder we know why that is happening we only focus on on the demand side of the problem we seldom focus on the supply side well let's talk about the supply side and where that supply is going to be constructed that's the debate in hamilton right now uh there was of course a petition online petition uh, that had an overwhelming response uh the majority of which are saying don't extend the urban boundary at all that if we're going to grow we're going to have to grow up not out uh, there was an interesting op-ed piece in uh, the spec. I know we were kind of busy on Election Day. I, mean, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but uh, it, it, it presents, I think, the argument in, in, a, in an objective way. Uh, and, and I think we need to talk about, uh, first of all, what policies we're going to enact, and, and most importantly, what kind of impact are those policies going to have on the community? Uh, you know, you don't want to make the wrong decision because it's pretty hard to go back. Uh, and unscramble the egg once you've done that. Uh, the author of that is Michael Colin Williams. Michael is the chief executive officer of the West End Home Builders Association, uh, and uh, I wanted to get him on the program today simply to present, you know, the argument and the decisions that have to be made here uh, in a pragmatic way. Michael, glad you could have some time to join us on the program today. Thanks for hopping on. Good morning, Bill. Thank you very much for having me. I read the article with great interest uh, because, well, you and I have talked about this in the past, about supply and demand and housing prices, and we had Tim Hudak, of course, from the Realtors Association on uh, talking about this as well. Uh, and there's a couple of things that you talk about here that I think we have to take as givens if we're going to move on and talk about this in a pragmatic way. Uh, first of all, we are going to grow. I think that's one of the points you made. Whether you like it or not, uh, the population in Hamilton and Toronto and most other cities in Ontario is going to expand considerably in the next 20 to 25 years. Yeah, and we've, uh, we've talked about this before, but um, let me just give your listeners and, and you some context. Uh, sure. I, I've often mentioned the, the elephant in the room, which is the sheer volume of growth coming to our region. So our, our broader region, Hamilton's Knotten Island onto itself, is the Greater Golden Horseshoe, stretching from Niagara to Waterloo and Collingwood to Peterborough. Uh, currently, the population in this region is about 10 million people, and that's projected to grow to 15 million by 2051. That's the equivalent of the entire population of Greater Montreal moving here. And this isn't hypothetical growth. If we split the last decade in half, uh, the first half of the last decade, 2010 to 2015, Ontario grew by 600,000 people. This actually accelerated to a million people the second half of the decade, 2015 to 2020. And while growth paused during the pandemic, uh, we just had that federal election you mentioned on, on Monday and the government that was re-elected has a plan to increase immigration targets to 400,000 per year as part of their post-pandemic recovery. And we know that the best and the brightest from around the world want to come to Canada, and they primarily settle in the Vancouver and the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area, uh, meaning that Hamilton has a, a big target on it in terms of um, the best and the brightest from around the world coming here. Um, so the growth uh, has really changed the housing landscape across Hamilton. Um, in fact, Oxford Economics recently published a report that Hamilton has now become the third least affordable city in all of North America, right after Toronto and Vancouver, when it comes to comparing incomes to housing prices. And that's primarily due to the rapid population increase over the past decade. And um, as we sort of get to the Hamilton discussion, uh, Hamilton's projected to grow from the current 584,000 residents in the city to about 823 residents by 2051. 
that's an increase of more than 40%. So the question here, and, and this, some people are boiling this down to what they consider to be the, you know, the, the core question here, is how do we grow then? Is it up or out? Uh, is, is it that simple? Uh, it's not that simple. Uh, it, it, planning is complicated. Uh, planning is about making uh, choices and, uh, and in some cases compromises. And when we're dealing with this amount of growth, 236,000 people over the next 30 years, I don't think it's possible to make everyone happy in terms of the choices we do have to make. Uh, and the article that you referred to in the Hamilton Spectator uh, the other day, uh, I provided sort of three different options. And, and I think the reality is that we need to lean into all three of those options to accommodate that sheer uh, volume of growth. And to provide for enough housing uh, for the people coming to Hamilton, in the coming decade, we really need to do three things in Hamilton. We need to grow up with taller buildings around transit and central arteries like Central Avenue or Upper James Street. Uh, we're going to need to grow in, and by that I mean denser infill housing within existing neighborhoods um, right across the city, be it Ancaster, Dundas, Stony Creek, uh, Flamborough, um, with more missing middle housing options. And we're going to need to grow out. And that does mean some new complete communities uh, built on existing and new greenfield sites at the edge of our city uh, with a small boundary expansion to, to help accommodate that. Now, city staff, uh, just so people understand the full picture here, have, have studied this. They've been studying this for years. I'm the, I'm, I go back when I was on council. And it's, been, it's only 15 years ago that I left council. Uh, and, and that was a heated discussion then. And, and we developed a, a policy called GRIDS. That's growth-related intubated uh, development in other words growing but growing smartly uh and and that's been an ongoing process uh, for the, in, in the city for many many years uh the staff recommendation uh, based on some of the things that you and i have just talked about here mike as you know basically says uh you, we're going to have to do both. Uh, you know, there's going to have to be some form of expansion. The, the suggestion seems to be that if you're simply going to say no urban expansion, the only way we're going to do it is infill or to go up. Uh, the, the contention I'm hearing from some people on city staff is that's not going to accommodate the growth that's going to happen. How do, how do you feel about that? I just reiterate the number that Hamilton's going to grow by about 236,000 people over the next 30 years. Uh, and, and we really need to have all hands on deck and all options available to ensure that we are building the appropriate amount of housing supply and a diversity of housing supply because people have different wants, needs, and desires. Uh, some people really want that dynamic downtown living right by restaurants and bars. Uh, other people want to, uh, the opportunity to live in an existing neighborhoods, historic neighborhoods throughout the city. And uh, some people do want that, especially uh, coming out of this pandemic. I think we've realized that a lot of people do appreciate having a backyard, a little patch of grass for their kids to play on, and, and perhaps a, a barbecue in, in their backyard. And um, if people don't have those options, especially those options at um, a somewhat affordable price, um, starter homes for young people and young families, people will vote with their feet and they will leave. Um, we have seen a bit of a flight, and, and I'm sure some of your listeners have heard anecdotally of people leaving Hamilton um, to more affordable communities um, up the highway uh, on the QEW to St. Catherine or the 403 to Brantford and Woodstock. That um, as more people are coming to the city, more people are coming from Toronto and Peel, um, some of those people uh, leaving small condos in downtown Toronto because they have a couple kids and 
looking around this tiny space, realizing it's just not going to work anymore. Uh, they're looking for opportunities to grow their families in Hamilton. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a game of musical chairs. And uh, some people are, are unable to find housing in Hamilton and they're leaving. And that, that's quite unfortunate if we're not able to provide uh, the amount of housing and the types of housing that Hamiltonians want to live in. And, and I know that one of the criticisms uh, that I'm sure you've heard, Mike, and, and I know other uh, people that are in this industry, the housing industry or the real estate industry, for that matter, is saying, well, you guys can't be objective because you're, you're only in this for the money. Uh, and, and I think that's a very specious argument. But more importantly, that the people that are not in it for the money, in other words, the people that are doing the planning for the city of Hamilton, are saying, look, at, we've got to have a, a more full discussion about this. We can't just do this. And, you know, as I talk to people in this community, uh, you have to understand, I think one of the key points you just talked about this is a mix of housing uh, i don't want to live in a high rise i'm you know i just that's not for me I, you know i did that when i was young and single a thousand years ago in, in an apartment I, I don't like it i i like you know the idea of having a back patio or back lawn or whatever the case might be and a lot of people are like that some people want to have not monster homes but they want to have property they want to have something like that uh, and we've seen that with some of the developments it's not as if we're talking about you know let's try doing it this way i mean when you look at some of the, the new housing developments that are being built uh, you're seeing that mixture you know rows of townhouses uh, single family units uh, and some high rises they're starting to go up as well so it, it's it's what seems to be the, the, what the public is asking for right now is give us this variety and give it to us in a community in which we want to live. I, I, I talked to so many people, friends of mine just the other day just had to buy a house in Brantford because they said they can't find anything that they want that's affordable here in the city of Hamilton. And that's happening more and more. I think you hit the, the nail on the head. It's really about diversity, about choice, uh, and offering uh, people different choices at, at hopefully a price that they can afford. Um, I think the challenge with some of the folks that think that we don't, shouldn't expand our urban boundary is that that just displaces people elsewhere. Um, if there are young families uh, with kids or, or people such as yourself that would like to have um, a little more elbow room, uh, if they can't find that opportunity in Hampton, they'll simply leave and they'll go somewhere else. And uh, that's not doesn't just become a housing issue. That becomes an economic competitiveness issue in terms of how are we going to continue to attract companies how are we going to continue to attract jobs if we don't have housing that's affordable for a workforce? Um, and you mentioned earlier the, the planning department in Hamilton. The professional planning staff in the city of Hamilton have recommended a small boundary expansion of just over 1,300 hectares, and that equates to only 1.5% of the city's total rural land area. So we're talking about a pretty small uh, expansion and uh, you also mentioned that, um, you know, in the new communities being built at the edge of Hamilton, these aren't the subdivisions that were built in the 70s and 80s of, of sprawling single-family homes. Um, there is a provincial growth plan in place. Uh, it was originally brought in by the previous Liberal government and updated by the current provincial Conservative government. But it has some pretty significant density targets that have to be achieved so that we are optimizing and maximizing any greenfield lands or new boundary expansion that's brought in to ensure that uh, they are at transit supportive densities. So that means a diverse community. Singles for sure, but also row homes, stacked townhomes, back-to-back townhomes, um, in mixed income and mixed use communities. Uh, so these really are complete communities. It's different than what was built in the decades past. And some of these new communities are actually far denser than the communities um, that exist in most areas of Hamilton. 
Well, I took a drive just the other day up on uh, Rimble Road, the east end of the mountain. Uh, and uh, if you, anybody that's it's under construction, by the way, so don't go up there now. But, I mean, uh, that's exactly what, what we see that's being constructed there. There are rows of townhomes, there are developments, uh, and, and they're done smarter. I mean, I, 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 your point's well taken. If you drive down you know, any place uh, you know, in, the, in the north end of the city, you say, God, there's no green space here. There's nothing like that, you know, because they didn't plan the way that we were supposed to plan back when they built those houses. But you see what's happening in developments now. And, and as you say, there's an accommodation for transit. Uh, there's an accommodation for green space. Uh, there's accommodations for, for, for representing the water tables. I mean, you, you'll see, you know, in Ancaster, just around the corner from where I live, I mean, there are storm retention ponds. I mean, it, it's a soccer field by the Meadowlands, but it's really a storm retention pond, which is going to get you know, put into pretty good use later on today when we get the rain. So we're, we're planning smarter and we're building smarter than we did in the past. Uh, and, and, and that's not suggesting that we could just absolutely willy-nilly say, okay, we're just going to take these 25 acres and just build stuff on it. Uh, there's a process that goes in place here. And, and uh, you know, we have to apply those rules, and I guess, and those standards uh, to any kind of growth that's going on. Uh, but you know, the other element that you point out in the piece here is uh, it's also going to be market-driven. And In other words, you can say, okay, it's only going to be infield development here, uh, but we've already seen, as you mentioned, other people that are saying, well, then I'm going someplace else. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll raise my family someplace else. It's, it's drive till you can buy. That seems to be the policy now. Uh, we'd rather they stayed here, wouldn't we? I think it's important for Hamilton to continue to be a community uh, that is welcoming to family and uh, a community that uh, has a workforce to support local jobs. I, I don't think any of us want Hamilton to become a simple bedroom community uh, for wealthier people to commute into Toronto. Uh, we need a community that, that's for Hamilton. Uh, and you mentioned as well uh, how different the communities that are being built today are. Um, I think building these entirely new communities to the highest standards provides exciting opportunities for renewable district energy. Uh, you mentioned stormwater management. Um, that's something that's uh, newer in the last couple decades. A lot of the older communities in Hamilton do not have that stormwater management, so this is to prevent flooding. Um, and there's even the potential for net zero or carbon neutral communities. Um, planning takes time. So even if a boundary expansion occurs, the first building permits are not going to be pulled on these homes for seven or eight years, which is a couple code cycles from now. And the uh, National Building Code is targeting uh, carbon neutral, um, net zero housing uh, two code cycles from now. So ironically, some of the most um, innovative and green communities would be those built uh, as part of uh, an urban expansion. Um, but this really isn't just about urban expansion. It, it's about more people, meaning we need more homes and, and having those options in a balance of housing needs. So we are going to build up in downtown Hamilton. Uh, I think we're going to see taller and taller buildings, uh, a bit of a new skyline emerging over the next decade with the LRT and, and the GO stations there. And perhaps the, the biggest cultural change that's going to happen in Hamilton isn't necessarily the downtown piece or the boundary expansion piece. It is the small-scale intensification of existing neighborhoods. So that might mean a single-family home on a larger lot is bought up, and then that becomes a couple townhomes or a couple uh, semi-detached homes. We are going to see some intensification and some change in our existing neighborhoods. And, and for better or for worse, as much as the political discussion is about, you know, big tall buildings or, or a boundary expansion, some of the most politically difficult discussions are changes in existing neighborhoods. Because a lot of people like their neighborhoods just the way they are, but we do need to make room to accommodate more people. 
Well, I know we're just about out of time, but I can tell you from from my I, I spent nine years on the planning committee when I was on city council way back in the day, uh, and and it's it's problematic, and it's it's going to take some courage, some political courage to do these sorts of things, uh, to be able to have that vision and say how this is this going to look, uh, and and to your point, I, I also know from talking to people in planning that have done it for many many years, you can't say well let's just leave it the way it is now, and if things really get out of hand, then we'll talk about that, because uh, as you say, it takes time to do this, and it, 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 it's 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 something that you need to plan eight, ten years down the road at least, uh, and you can't just say arbitrarily say, "Okay, let's do it now," uh, because the the problem's already been created if you don't do anything about it now. City Council is going to come uh, with a report. Of the uh, I guess uh, three, four weeks from now, toward the end of October, uh, and it's going to be an interesting debate. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, the people on council that are going to be voting on this uh, have read your piece and uh, and listened to both sides of this very, very important issue. Uh, Mike, uh, thank you as always for taking some time with us today, and I know that we'll talk more a lot more about this going down the road. Thanks again. Really appreciate the opportunity. Always happy to talk about planning and, and housing issues and, and the challenges ahead, uh, especially as housing prices are getting a little out of control and, and we need to ensure that we're building the appropriate long-term housing supply for the people of Hamilton. As always, Mike, thanks so much. Mike Collins-Williams, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the... Uh, Impacts of the the most recent federal election, of course, and, and which is still ongoing. They're still counting ballots in Hamilton Mountain, of course, the, the mail-in ballots. But uh, is uh, in the east end, Hamilton East Stony Creek, where Chad Collins, the uh, city councillor for that area, uh, was elected uh, as the Liberal candidate and will serve as the member of parliament uh, for that area. That means that there's going to have to be a replacement for uh, Councillor Collins. He's still Councillor Collins, I guess, at this stage anyway. Uh, and there's an interesting debate that's ongoing right now about exactly how that process should unfold. Uh, and a lot of uh, chatter on social media about what should be happening here. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Craig Burley. Craig is a spokesperson for I Elect Hamilton, which is the organization that we've talked uh, with and about over the last little while uh, about looking for uh, some changes in Hamilton municipal politics. Uh, Craig, great to have you on the show. Uh, interesting times of, that we're in these days. Uh, this is not the first time we've faced this as a community with uh, somebody who's moving to a different level of government. Uh, talk to us about how you guys are feeling about this, how I Elect Hamilton would like to see the process unfold. Thanks, Bill, and thanks for having me on. I-Elect is ultimately an organization that's dedicated to democracy and strengthening the democracy that uh, we have in our city. And uh, there's been quite a bit of discussion um, within our ranks and that is now happening or starting to happen in the community more broadly about what's to be done to replace Councillor Collins, because council actually has a choice for, mm -hmm. what they, for what they can do. So there is a choice that we can have a by-election. Now, the next municipal election is coming not exactly just around the corner, but in just a bit over 13 months from now. Yeah. And uh, there's a choice, therefore, to have a by-election, or a council can, on its own uh, you know, off its own bat, on its own uh, decision, can simply appoint a replacement to serve out the rest of Councillor Collins' term. Um, and I'd like to congratulate him as well for his, uh, his win. Um, the, the seat becomes vacant once Councillor Collins becomes a member of Parliament, so once he goes to Ottawa and takes that oath. And that'll be around the time Parliament opens. I'm not sure uh, the Prime Minister has announced a date yet when... No, I, I haven't heard one yet reconvened but uh, they'll work that out with the with the governor with with the governor general um 
So at the next meeting after that happens, council has to declare the seat to be vacant, and then they're required to either fill the vacancy or call a by-election within 60 days. Uh, that's the Municipal Act, and that's sort of how it sets out. Um, it is a rather stark choice. We faced it a, a couple of times in the recent past. And, uh, and we've seen both. Was, yeah, past, past councils, we've seen examples of both. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's been more than a few times. Uh, Russ Powers in Dundas was elected to, to the federal government, uh, and there was a by-election in Dundas, and Art Sampson uh, filled that when he was a... Uh, but we've also seen uh, the appointees. Uh, when, when Bernie Morelli passed away uh, in, in Ward 3 some years ago, uh, this council decided to appoint former Mayor Bob Morrill. Uh, to act as the councillor for that area for the remainder of the term. And uh, uh, there's a, there's arguments on both sides here, Craig, because, I mean, you know, in both situations, uh, different process, but uh, it seemed to be an effective way to fill the seat. Uh, and, and so the debate here is exactly which way is the best way and which way is, as you say, you know, the most democratic way, but you also talk about things like feasibility. Do you want to have a by-election a year before there's going to be another municipal election? Uh, that has to be a, a lot put on the table here before we actually or not we but the council makes a decision on this that's right because there's a couple of other aspects that currently complicate the the, the factor as well and that we and i elect have been you know discussing within the organization um, the issue of election fatigue is certainly there and i don't want to deny that that's an issue because we've just come off a federal election there's going to be a provincial election uh coming before we know it and a council election arriving next year um, so that potentially could be, you know, four elections within just over a year for um, those living in uh, in Ward 5. And, you know, we certainly don't want to test anyone's patience. Um, there's also, of course, the COVID issue, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. If we, you know, if we declare a by-election, um, and the by-election doesn't have to happen within 60 days, but it's got to be declared within 60 days, um, certainly we're seeing... I think, you know, more ability, the federal election seems to have gone off quite well, all things considered, although there's still some, you know, shakeout from those discussions as well. And we'll see what effect it may have had uh, over the coming weeks. Uh, but, you know, we don't want it to be an opportunity where, you know, if people are, if the people are nervous about holding elections because of COVID, then, you know, that does seem like a valid reason to think, that an election could wait for a year. But ILX's position is that we need to fall back on the democratic mandate. Um, the work that council does is important. And the work that council does is important. The most recent situation this happened in 2018 uh, was when Donna Skelly was uh, elected to the provincial legislature and her seat was declared vacant. And at that time, council actually tried uh, not to have an election at all. And they went to the provincial government, um, they wrote to the minister, and they said, we know the law requires us to do this, but please, please, please don't make us do this. We don't want to appoint anybody. We want it left open. And appropriately, that was refused. Um, the minister couldn't actually do what council wanted to anyway, but um, it was refused. And council also tried to appoint two other existing councillors to that same seat to, you know, share the job, as it were, and, you know, I ended up having to write a letter, I don't remember who it was to, I think it was to the minister, pointing out that that would be illegal and, you know, the existing seats would be declared vacant, we'd be back in the same issue. 
So they elected to appoint Terry Anderson, who um, was a former counselor for Ward 7, and mm-hmm. quite, you know, ca- and quite capably um, saw out the remainder of the term. Most of it was during the summer when council activity is pretty low. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it didn't work poorly, but it wasn't democratic. And there wasn't really any participation from neither the people of Ward 5 nor people within the city more broadly. And the reason we democratically elect councillors is precisely to make sure, A, that they reflect the will of the voters as to who should sit there, and B, that there should be some responsibility um, back to us for, you know, who makes these decisions, because they are important. And in every year of council, and it is a whole year of council we're looking at, um, there is a number of very important decisions that are made, and it just seems to us that the reasons for electing every four years are the same as electing someone to fill out an entire year of uh, a council term. So let's let's talk about about the impact on some of these yeah. things. And you raised some very interesting points and some very interesting variables. And uh, there's one that I have seen on social media, a, a few people that have weighed in on this, uh, and it's at the fact that it's COVID right now. And do you really want to, as this person wrote, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, do you really want to drag Ward 5 voters out again for another COVID election, you know, where the, there aren't as many polling stations? And we saw the, the voter turnout was, was terribly low uh, for this federal election. Uh, by-elections by usually, uh, even municipal by-elections, usually have very low turnout as well. So there's a consideration there uh, about what's going to happen. And, and these are all things that council has to weigh. But your point of what the appointees has been well taken too, because they have served well. Bob Borough did, I, I thought, a very good job uh, filling in in Ward 3. Uh, Harry Anderson, a guy I worked with on council many years ago, uh, very capable. Uh, to, and as you mentioned, there wasn't a whole lot going on. But this is a particularly important year, though, I think, Craig. These last 12 months, uh, you, you can't just play out the string here. I mean, there's some important decisions to be made about urban boundary expansion. Uh, there's still more LRT votes to come here when it comes to m- funding, etc. cetera. Uh, so the learning curve is going to be pretty steep here uh, for anybody who's going to ha- be asked to sit there or who's going to win in a by-election. And then, of course, there's the cost, which you all, we all have to talk about here. There is a cost to a by-election. And, you know, d- does the city want to incur that cost once again? And, and Councillor Collins has already sort of committed to, uh, and this is what happens when councillors get up and leave during the middle of their term, is um, that, uh, you know, it, it necessitates either a democratic deficit or the expenditure to fill it. Um, you know, there isn't an easy answer, but I do think that there is um, an argument to say that if the costs are worth it, every four years to hold elections in all the wards, um, then the costs do seem to be worth it to make sure, because ultimately the, co- the cost of democracy is incredibly cheap when we look at what it is that they do, right? Having democratically elected and democratically accountable councillors allows us to be sure that there is a check and a balance on the people who direct that city corporation and you know in governance terms it's incredibly cheap for what you buy um i had a really interesting discussion with a uh, a friend um who is uh, you know from a country that has a pretty severe democratic deficit we were talking about this issue the other day and i was making the point about the cost of the federal election some 600 million dollars and saying that 600 million dollars is incredibly cheap to get 
And again, I don't want to say we're well-governed, but I think, you know, we are well-governed compared to countries that we see that don't have enough democracy, that don't have a robust democracy that ensures that government is ultimately responsible to us. And really, the cost of democracy is cheap for what we get. What we get is responsible leadership at the end of the day. And, you know, we're the break on that. We are the check and balance. When you take us out of the equation as the voters, right, it becomes a question of who council wants to see sitting on council. And we've seen on a number of occasions recently where, you know, council's opinion of something, and you mentioned urban boundary expansion, that's the best example, right? The city and council said, wow, we really like the looks of this. uh, We really like the looks of this growth plan. What do you think? And they sent it out to the citizens and they said, tell us what you think. And tens of thousands of people responded and they said, we think it's terrible. We don't want urban boundary expansion. Right. And it was, you know, eight to one in, uh, in, you know, rejecting what they had said. So if council can be and our council has an unfortunate reputation, right, of of um, fighting the citizens on a number of fronts and having them appoint the person that they want doesn't seem to me to necessarily cohere and you know, that urban boundary example is a great, that urban boundary example is a great one, doesn't necessarily cohere with what voices people want to see at the table. And part and, of the problem with that, yeah. of course, and, and, you know, we're talking about individuals here, but, you know, if it's going to be an appointee, which is one of the options, uh, as you mentioned, nine times out of ten, it's usually a former councillor. Uh, you know, or former mayor in the case of Bob Morrow. But, uh, you know, Art Sampson in Dundas, of course, was a councillor there. Uh, Terry Anderson, you mentioned. Uh, uh, the, the only by-election, of course, was when uh, uh, when Scott Duval decided to run federally, and, and there was a by-election. Donna Skelly won that by-election, and then, of course, there was... And then she went on and she ran provincially, so that, that's when they had to appoint Terry Anderson. <laughs> so it, it's, yeah, the problem, though, is, is you know, if council's going to make that appointee, do they appoint somebody that they feel comfortable with or somebody who is, is capable? I mean, and not to suggest those individuals were capable because they, they most certainly were, but it's not likely that council's going to put somebody on there who's going to be contrarian to an awful lot of the, the views on that council. That, that's, that's human nature. And that's where I talk about the democratic deficit, right? Ward 5, for example, and you mentioned LRT is a coming issue. Ward 5 is a key ward when we look at what we are going to do with LRT, how LRT is going to change our plans and so forth, because it is ultimately kind of the, you know, it is ultimately the end stop here, right? And the the terminus. And there is a lot of development that's going to go on around that. And a lot of things that we may do one way or the other to, you know, vote on how that works. And that community's voice deserves to be represented. And it's not that an appointee can't represent the voice of people. It's that an election helps us work these things out. Uh, Elections are not just a process where we appoint someone. Elections are a process where we talk to each other about our visions for the future where we talk to each other and we listen to what each other has to say and we, we watch what other people respond to, right, about 
where we want to go, what our vision for the future is, how we would like to see the city develop, how we would like to see our neighborhood service. And we don't have those discussions if council simply comes along and appoints somebody. Then it becomes a question of, well, are they going to go out and listen to the voters? And if so, who are they going to go out and listen to? The wonderful thing about one person, one vote, and the wonderful thing about these sort of broadly participatory elections that we have is it is a place where politics is done as well as a decision about who is to do the politics. A very important decision. opportunity. Exactly. Uh, we're out of time this time around, but uh, we encourage people, if you've got opinions on this, and you should, uh, talk to your councillors, uh, because they're the ones that are ultimately going to make this decision, and it's going to happen sooner than later. Craig, we'll certainly stay in touch on this. Uh, uh, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. It's a very important issue. Bill, it was wonderful to, for, for you to have me on. Thank you so much. Craig Burley is a spokesperson with the I elect Hamilton, uh, and it's a decision, as we said, the council is going to have to make. And it's not just a Hamilton problem. This goes on in many other communities as well, where uh, people that are at the municipal level move up to either federal or provincial, and uh, there's a vacancy left. And it is only one year until the next municipal election, uh, next October, but uh, it's a pretty important year. So it's a pretty important decision. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, podcast or wherever you get your podcast from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml i'm bill kelly thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review